What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. Five years ago, rap, hip-hop, overthrew rock and pop to become music's most in-demand genre. It hit about 25% of the music consumption, and it's continued to grow. Rap hip-hop originated in the late 70s in the Bronx, as we learn in today's guest book, God Save the Queens, The Essential History of Women in Hip-Hop, Kathy Yeah. Sorry, Kathy Yandoli takes you to the rec rooms where the genre got its roots, and now, as Kathy says, even Beyonce raps. To grasp this transition, Beyonce and Jay-Z now do video and multi-page layouts for Tiffany and Company um, with a Basquiat painting as a backdrop. Kathy, it's changed so much. Welcome. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, hip-hop, it, it really is a moving target. Um, you have published uh, God Save the Queens uh, a couple years ago, but that seems like nothing in particular with the pandemic. Um, I feel like there are some common threads, though, in the early performers um, who came out of the hood and that the music genre itself came from the streets, the language came from the streets, um, I wonder, you know, I, I took a look at the Met Gala uh, representation of hip-hop this year, and it was stunning. Um, I watched Megan The Stallion put on her dress for the Met Gala behind scenes, and she was crying, um, because it's not like the ice queens who feel entitled to this kind of treatment. Um, it's very soulful, and, and a lot of these performers have risen from a place of hard knocks. Um, I wonder if that was what drew you to hip-hop and to devote your writing to it, or what was it that compelled you to, to enter this arena? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I'm born in the 70s, but arguably an 80s baby, and I think if you think about what the music landscape was like for children in the 80s, right? You're talking about um, on one side were hair bands. <laughs> on the other side mm-hmm. was just very traditional 80s pop music. And then sprinkled in were the emergence of this kind of new version of a boy band, you know, like New Kids on the Block. So for me as a young kid, a young little girl, when I saw the ladies' first video in 1989, I was 10 years old. Seeing that level of empowerment and self-confidence from two women, Queen Latifah and Moni Love, kind of was the starting off point of shaping my identity. Because, you know, I came from a household that was all women. I lived with my mother and my grandmother, you know, um, a single-parent household. My mother held down the house. And I, I guess for me, seeing independent women um, showing off their strength was something that spoke to me as a child because it reminded me of the house I lived in. And mm-hmm. not necessarily in the way of living in the South Bronx, let's, let's say. I grew up in New Jersey. But, but just um, living in a household where there was a lot of autonomy as a female. So for me, that's what spoke to me as a, as a little kid. And it was actually ladies first, literally and figuratively. And Queen Latifah, I mean, was a hugely empowering figure, is still today. Um, And I wonder if your additive value in writing about these figures also helps to shine a light on them and to to understand their role um, in kind of lighting the path for lots of young girls everywhere, but particularly, you know, growing up in neighborhoods in the hood and projects, um, young girls of color. 
Uh, do you feel as though your books have pushed the needle a little bit forward? I hope they do. I mean, I'm now moving into my fifth book uh, that covers hip-hop culture to some degree. For, for me, as an ally to the culture especially, it's making the, the message more prominent, like you said. I think for, for a very long time, even beyond just women in hip-hop, hip-hop specifically, when you're talking about what the original, I don't want to say reason for hip-hop was, but you started with the jams outside in the Bronx um, in the heart of the summer, and then it slowly evolved into the clubs. But it became a bigger platform to kind of discuss what was going on in those underrepresented neighborhoods. Because when you're talking about the heart of the crack epidemic, it's not something that newspapers ever really held a microscope to. It it was one of those things where it's almost like glamorizing the trauma of these neighborhoods without doing anything to actually solve the problems. And I think what was happening at that point in hip-hop, when you're moving into the early 80s, you started to see artists really be the newspapers and the watchdogs of the culture talking about, like, hey, I walk out of my home and and there's crack vials in front of me. Children aren't safe. People are being shot. And nothing is getting done. And initially, that was something that I think almost stopped hip-hop from being popularized because very rarely do people want to hear the truth about these specific neighborhoods. You know, nobody wants to know that more needs to be done. Absolutely. And, you know, even, yeah, even now, I mean, I think this is, that's a great um, kind of analogy that it's like reporting from the scene. We, you know, dominant white culture wasn't interested, even today, has a kind of um, level of denial that is pretty uh, catastrophic in terms of understanding um, hip-hop in, in terms of, you know, moving away from gangsterism. But then, you know, this week alone, young Dolph was killed outside a South yes. Memphis bakery, in a bakery. Um, you know, and and yet... This is a dominant genre, so clearly there's another vibe where people are getting on board with, like, we don't want to whitewash, so to speak, this whole situation. Um, maybe it's not crack so much anymore, but, you know, the whole level of, yeah, I mean, violence. Um, and I, I think, you know, there you've really, you know, you've really hit on something. I mean, do you think we are moving away from this kind of, um, you know, this kind of threat, this threatening kind of, and is this more male-dominated, you know, the the whole violence strain to hip-hop. What's the gravitational pull there? Are we moving away from or toward it or what's really happening? And is it based in drug culture still? Well, I think it's layered. Um, you know, you're talking about a situation where, you know, arguably all music is black music, right? The, the heart of every piece of popular music outside of even hip-hop, the origins are from black music to some degree, right? Whether you're talking about blues mm-hmm. or jazz or funk, whatever, whatever the case may be, the heart of it is black music. And for decades upon decades, you had this allure and a white audience being drawn to the black music specifically without wanting to understand where the pain comes from behind the soul. It's, it's almost like, let me take, let me, let me eat the cake, but not know the ingredients. Right. And I think that's what ended up started. That's what started happening where to your, to your point, the, the whitewashing of it became like almost the hostess to the local baker. Right. The, uh-huh. the, the, the mass production of something as opposed to the soulful ingredients um, made with love. Right. And when you're talking about women specifically, women in hip hop served an entirely different function from what hip hop uh, served to, uh, to, I guess, the, everybody. Right. Women in hip hop were there from day one. 
But in the interest of promoting the culture and moving it forward, they had to take a step back so that the men at the front could thrive. And when women started mm-hmm. coming into the space more prominently, there was a threat that it was going to be tagged as a female culture. So that's where you started to see all the wars, women against women. There could only be one. Let's pit everyone against each other because, God forbid, having it pegged as a female culture would somehow stigmatize it to mainstream society because you're talking about there's, there's very obvious racism, but you're also talking about sexism. And I think what we're experiencing now in 2021 is this culmination of everything that women have fought for in hip-hop. And now they're able to coexist. You have your Megan Thee Stallion. You have Cardi B. You have Nicki Minaj. You have Lil' Kim. You know, you have the City Girls. You have all of these wonderful artists who are in the space and thriving and making music. And I think the bigger conversation of there can only be one has now been squashed. But it took four decades of women having to fight for their place in hip-hop the same way we have to in society. See, hip-hop, hip-hop as a culture mimics society as a whole, right? Like, that's, like it, it's mm-hmm. just like a mirror image. You know, we, ha- we add all the little accessories of, you know, the idea of um, where the origins of it and, and the hardships and all these other things, but it's really just a mirror reflection of society. So right now we're watching women finally get the respect they deserve. I'm very curious, though, to see what happens when the top person in hip-hop is a woman, identifies as a Mm -hmm. woman. Because I think for several years, you know, when Beyonce started rapping, and, and, you know, I, I make a reference to that, I wondered, I was like, what would happen if Beyonce becomes the top figure of hip-hop specifically. It didn't happen yet. I mean, Beyonce is an icon and and at the top of popular music, but more specifically hip-hop. I was like, what would happen if the the top of hip-hop was a queen and not a king? I I was always just, it's it's just something I've thought about, and I'm just not sure if the powers that be would allow for that to happen. But either way, I'm just really thrilled that we're at a point now where women are finally getting to coexist without the narrative being, who can we get rid of? And there's a lot, of, there's a lot more collaboration. I mean, hip-hop, uh, by its nature, you know, always was kind of collaborative, right? Like, artists drop into other people's cuts and, you know, collaborate on songs. But I, um, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying. There was always this either-or and the cat fights became fodder, the, the catfights between female hip-hop artists, um, Lil' Kim uh, being one of them, and Cardi B, you know, it's, it's something that I feel it's too bad that there's that um, distraction, that there isn't that sense of, like, the reality of the studio is, like, everybody comes, comes in and kind of jams and, and, you know, does work together and lays down tracks. Um, you know, I think the fact that you, I mean, you, you've, you've, done a, you've done a couple of books since, since this one, since God Saved the Queens, you've done a collaboration with Little Kim, with Little Kim, and I wondered, you know, when you're, when you're working with somebody so iconic, you know, what, what do you feel you're bringing to the table? Um, you know, we know from, from your bio, you're, a seasoned journalist, I'll just give the listeners a background, uh, a cultural, cultural critic with two decades of music industry experience in the fields of media, marketing, radio, publicity, and brand management. Um, you've reported on hip-hop, rock, electronic, and pop, but, you know, you, you really, you've really focused here uh, with um, God Save the Queens. You know, NPR called it one of their favorite books of the year, um, because you gave such a respectful examination of the presence and contribution of the genre's female artists. Um, I wondered, how is it working collaboratively with some li- someone like Lil' Kim uh, doing her biography, which is something you've done several of? Um, is it welcomed? Is it also empowering for you and the artist? Uh, how, how is that for you? 
Well, Kim said in an interview with Black Enterprise um, a few weeks ago, she compared our working relationship to therapy. And mm-hmm. I'd have to agree. It's, it's asking the questions you don't want to ask yourself. That's, that's when you collaborate on a memoir with, with um, a public figure or anyone for that matter. You ask them the questions they don't want to ask themselves. And it's the same thing that I did with Prodigy, Rest in Peace. Um, it's a similar thing that I did in working with T-Pain on his most recent uh, drink book, because in the beginning we talk about, we do like an introduction. It's just asking questions they don't want to ask themselves. And when, when you're open to, and you're receptive to wanting to tell your story with all of its peaks and valleys, you need someone to ask these questions. Because, you know, in journalism, especially how it's evolved over the years, it's, it's lost the luster of getting into the nitty-gritty and the interest of clickbait. When you have a book, you're able to kind of open it up and, and take a deeper look and have more of an emotional connection to your subject. And because Lil' Kim is a friend of mine, she's one of my hip-hop heroes, I, it was such a natural and organic exchange in putting that book together. And, you know, when it comes out next year, people are going to really understand Kim in a different way. I think that's really humanizing and so important. Um, we're going to pause here for a commercial break, but I think what we'd like to come back to is the source of pain, how it's kind of been marketed without examining the source of pain that is, as you say, the origin of most music is with black history, and yet we don't really want to confront that source of pain. We just want to enjoy the fruits of the labors. And this is somehow already an exploitive level. I also wonder if some of the kings and queens of hip-hop, you know, have they gotten to a point where they're removing themselves from the source of pain through their affluence, um, and then are they any longer relatable? We'll, we'll pick it up where we left off with Kathy Yandoli. And when we come back in just a minute, don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Hey, everyone. We're here with Kathy Yandoli, and we are speaking about God Save the Queens. Uh, it is a book that, even though um, this is a quixotic uh, movement, that of hip-hop and rap, uh, the culture still and always derives its roots, uh, as we've said, and Kathy, thank goodness you've brought this up, the source point. Okay, it, it is the pain of the black experience. We can say what we like. I think that, you know, with the amount of hip-hop audience that there is, and if it's 25% of music consumed, you can bet a lot of that is a white audience. Um, and it's people who you know, want to feel hip, want to have the groove, don't really want to go there in terms of like, yeah, um, if we have, as you mentioned during the break, we had George Floyd last summer, but nobody wants to really connect those dots. It's just like, let's just enjoy the sound as though the sound were somehow divorced or removed from 
the black experience. Um, in some ways, the black experience is changing. In other ways, it's, it's really, really not. Um, I'd love for you to kind of go there in terms of what it's like for women. Is that even more accentuated um, in misogynist culture? And how do women experience the repression or, you know, we're all appalled and aghast at what still goes on. Um, And what about women? What about the role of women to attest to this as well as their own experience? Well, you know, we, we mentioned George Floyd during the commercial break as an example of what happens when um, a greater white audience wants to hear the product but doesn't want to understand um, where the pain is derived from. You know, it's almost like nobody wants to hear the phrase Black Lives Matter because to them black lives only matter when they're coming through their stereo, which, which is awful. But there's another name I want to bring up um, to speak to what you're talking about in, in terms of, of women, and that's Breonna Taylor. And mm-hmm. the way that her murder was completely overlooked, not prioritized, showed that because black women specifically, you know, because when you're talking about, I mean, women are constantly othered in society. Black Americans are constantly othered in society. So when you're a black woman who in, in most cases is a pillar of strength, but you're still othered in society. And when I was putting God Save the Queens together, you know, my mother was fighting cancer. By the time um, I submitted my book and had it edited and the book came out, my mother had passed away. And it was the women that I interviewed in the book who came back around and held me down, these black women. I, I, more specifically, MCWD, um, the first female MC soloist in hip-hop history. She was one of the people. She, um, she has since gone on to become a pastor. Debbie D came into my mother's hospital room and anointed her before she passed away because that's the power of black women. And, and I, I hold that near and dear to me because that, that moment, because it was almost like this full circle moment. And mm-hmm. I think when you're, when you're talking about what black women contribute to society on a, on a greater scale and how much is taken from them, from fashion to beauty to any elements of style to any elements of strength, even using the phrase queen, right? Any any vernacular, the, everything that that the way people talk is is a reflection of something that arguably was started um, through the conversations between black women. So again, it speaks to how it's the you know, we, we want the, we want the, the finished product, but we don't, we don't want to honor its source. And in the way of misogyny, you know, someone once asked me, did, um, how do you feel that you work in hip hop, such a misogynistic culture? Like, how do you, how have you done this for 20 years? Plus, and I said, if I want to escape misogyny, I might as well never leave my house. You know, I, I think that, you know, what, what, what tends to happen is because hip-hop culture is anchored and was started by black people, the concept of misogyny, they, they magnify it in hip-hop because they, they want to only add to stigmatizing it, as if to say that every other part of the world or any other part of society, women are somehow just like so honored until we traipse into hip-hop. That's not what happens. Women are constantly, misogyny is everywhere, right? You know, we we still don't make enough money to the dollar. So don't blame hip-hop. I think the only difference is hip-hop gave it a soundtrack at times. But again, um, I, you know, like I said, I'm a, a child of the 80s. Am I the only one who remembers Tawny Katan, like, spread across uh, uh, David Coverdale's car in, in a White Snake video? We were, this, was, this was always happening. It's only that right. when it's in, within a culture that people are threatened by that it suddenly becomes the moving target. And I well, think that's where I think the wires get crossed. Mm-hmm. 
the wires definitely get crossed, and it's a convenience of thought because, you know, living here in Florida and looking at the sculpting and shaping of bodies that goes on here with women, I can honestly say that objectification is alive and well. Um, you know, there's just, it, it, it's sort of another kind of chamber where we lock ourselves away from that idea. And I also think that black culture has always been exoticized in terms of sexuality. There was always part of that was part of the trope, the stereotypes. Um, and I think the fact that women in hip hop have been sex positive and sort of take control of that narrative, I don't see how that is hypocritical. <laughs> to be honest, I, I think that, you know, um, and that, that's one, that's sort of one pillar of strength, but I think you touched on another one that I think really is so um, bedrock, and that is the spirituality, um, because, you know, you've got, you've got situations where, you know, like Breonna Taylor, she, you know, her death is overlooked, and also what's overlooked is the abiding... Uh, bonding and spirituality that also is part of the identity of black women, and particularly in this country. Um, and the fact that, you know, WD came to you, uh, you know, it's it somehow at the same time, Megan, um, the stallion lost her mother the next year and, and really deep, um, sorrow for your loss, but I also am not surprised that that wellspring then was there to nurture you, um, because that is another pillar of strength, um, and I think that is another part of the culture that gets sort of downplayed. People are uncomfortable. They don't, you know, what really goes on in gospel churches. Um, maybe it's too much or, you know, something. There's just a kind of fear of otherness at all these different levels, you know, physicality, sexuality, spirituality. It's, it's all like too much. So if you get it like more bland, um, you know, and you kind of sort of, yes, everything gets very sort of airbrushed, like, sorry, it is in the, you know, Beyonce, Jay-Z ads, um, and they're everywhere. Um, you don't feel the vibe anymore, and then I think white culture is, is less threatened. Um, I hope I'm making sense here, but I, I just, I, I want to, I, I just sort of want to say, um, Kathy Yandele, you have really, I think, made a contribution by being real, um, about what's going on in culture in la at large and with, and with hip-hop culture, uh, beginning with Prodigy, which I think was your first release, right? The Commissary Cookbook, which has nothing to do with the um, gourmet grocery store in New York. It had to do with Prodigy, um, wrote in collaboration with Kathy Andley from his prison cell. Um, uh, about food that, you know, he was the fundamental of, of prison life. Um, I, I, I do want to touch on that, but I also can't let um, your mother's passing alone without the very beautiful acknowledgement of Yellow Brick and the scholarship that you've developed in her name um, to help women enter the music industry. And I wonder if you just address that for us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, my mother's life's work was, um, you know, starting as a teacher and then being a curriculum writer for um, inner city schools. And, and what my mother used to do was she would actually travel to more affluent communities and work within their schools and bring back what she learned of these other communities back into the inner city to show where all the gaps were, um, which is something that I try to do with my own work as well is to fill in the gaps that are missing in, in places that need to be filled. And with Annie's daughters, uh, you know, there's, it's a, it's a combination of helping women get into the music industry, but also using it as a vessel to promote literacy, which is something that my mother did throughout her entire life as well. And 
I think it's just really, the music industry specifically is a very, very hard industry to be a woman in. Um, you're talking about a, uh, an industry that's built on after hours. And that alone puts us at a disadvantage. You know, in my, in my 20 plus years working in music, there have been times where I've had to conduct interviews at three o'clock in the morning and recording studios full of men. No one, men don't have to think about these things. These are luxuries that men will never have to think about, right? Their safety, their safety in different ways. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to reduce it to that because men do have to worry, worry about their safety. Rest in peace to young Dolph, who is an incredible young man too. I, I interviewed him many times and the fact that he was picking up cookies for his family and going to later hand out turkeys for Thanksgiving and the fact that he was murdered, um, is just, is terrible and speaks to the greater conversation of, how uh, black men specifically also need to be protected. But um, in terms of being a woman and worrying about our own safety, our bodies safety-wise, I think that's, that's the, the thing. You know, in an after-hours profession, it makes it really, really difficult to survive because it's not a 9 to 5 mm -hmm. job. If anything, it's a 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. job. And what I wanted to do was offer the tools the learning tools. You know, I have my, I have my master's in music business from um, New York University. I'm a professor at NYU as well in music business. So it's mm -hmm. really, um, it's an each one teach one situation. And I just wanted to offer up an opportunity for young women to have a little bit of an advantage to at least get some tools because, you know, it's also an industry where you can work your way up without having that educational foundation, but having that foundation actually means everything when, when you have it, it's, it's, it's just an extra tool in the belt that just changes everything. So it was just my way of giving back, but also honoring my mother. I, I, I tried to do that since she passed away, do things that will keep her memory going, especially the things that she's worked towards. I have a school named after my mother in Patterson, New Jersey, where she did most of her work. It's called the um, Anna Andaly uh, Early Learning Center. And um, it's just something that, for me, because my mother was my direct influence and inspired me and, and has made me the woman that I am, um, I, I have, I, I, I'm keeping her memory going, you know, forever and ever. There's a wonderful YouTube video of Kathy Yandley talking about the Yellow Brick Co. Uh, it's it's the, the 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 website. Well, there's a link to it on the YouTube, but um, it's it's so it's Yellow Brick is part is you know of developmental. There are programs that have the potential to change students' lives by providing a valuable credential um, from a leading university like NYU that helps to open doors and career opportunities that students may not have otherwise known about. And Kathy, your, so Annie's daughter's scholarship um, was created to empower women. And part of the application process is to write an essay on um, explaining the impact of a woman who has influenced your life. Um, I think this is also coming full circle in that that is how you got um, inspired by and uh, inspired to devote your career to hip hop is because these iconic women are standouts. Um, so, you know, from the, from the get go, you were, you were writing about, um, you know, Missy Elliott, um, your editor, you've had editorial positions at allhiphop.com, hiphopdx.com, bet.com. Um, it's, it's really, um, it's just a really, it's a great tradition. And I think the fact that you are um, a white woman who has kind of experienced the empowerment vicariously from black women black performers, I wonder if you sensed like I did when I was reading God Save the Queens, The Essential History of Women in Hip Hop, whether you still felt even a deeper sense of frustration that with all they have going for them, that women in hip hop haven't risen to the top spots. And do you think that's in the foreseeable future? You know, I, the, 
to speak to your first question, the, um, the frustration came from specific stories that I heard, you know, one being Moni Love when, um, when Moni got here and none of the men wanted to respect her uh, when she was trying to perform and she, she went home and she shaved her head and she taped down her breasts and she wore baggy clothes so that they wouldn't look at her or her body in, in the interest of her being able to kind of rap and, and promote her art. You know, and then I think about um, MC Sparky D, who told me a story of how they would, uh, the uh, male rappers would invite her to concerts after they've already been paid and then ask her to come on stage and do a couple songs. So she's part of the performance, but not part of the profit. And uh, those were stories that really, really frustrated me. Um, do I think that it's getting better for women in hip hop? Yes and no. I think it's just like asking, do I think it's getting better for women in society? Yes and no, right? You still have states like Texas trying to stop us. So I think that until until there's a universal appreciation of women across the board, it's only then that we can get deeper into other parts of that conversation to understand. Like I said, this is all just a mirror reflection of society. So you're not going to, I mean, we just have a female vice president right now. We still have never had a female president. So to ask if a woman could be on the top, at the top of hip hop, a greater question is, can a woman be at the top of the country? You know, there's, there's, exactly. there's so many different pieces. Yeah. Well, we're going to break, I'm, no, I'm we're going to break hope. down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm holding out hope too, but it's, Three steps forward, two steps back. Um, I think that, you know, I'll just read a quote, without God Save the Queens, it's possible that the contribution of dozens of important female hip-hop artists who've sold tens of millions of albums, starred in monumental films, and influenced the direction of culture would continue to go unrecognized. We're sitting with Kathy Yandley, and we are talking about God Save the Queens. That was a quote from allhiphop.com about this book, and we'll continue the conversation specifically going to money and the discrepancies and how it's tilting away from and towards. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Kathy Yandley, and we're talking about disparities of wealth, um, both in the way that money is measured as a sign of success and how hip hop artists obviously have entered the 1% sphere. We're looking at, you know, Snoop Dogg coming from, you know, 20 years back and um, doggy style release of, of that uh, album to now forming collaboration with Martha Stewart, uh, a billionaire and Snoop is right there with her. Um, and they have a cannabis product um, that they're marketing together. So there are some lines that have been crossed. And do we get 
the artificial sense that things are now okay, Kathy, and is it a bit of a myth that needs busting? Yeah, I think it's absolutely a myth that needs to be busted, <laughs> bust, <laughs> because burst, <laughs> because I think that we've used we've used money as the measuring stick for equality, and that's not true. That's it's it's absolutely not true, because what you're then doing is you're applying capitalism as the cure for racism, and that's not accurate. You know, mm-hmm. um, we mentioned Young Dolph. Um, previously a multi-million dollar rapper who couldn't even buy a cookie without being killed. So no, it's, it's not, it's not all better now because, um, a certain percentage of black Americans are now able to enter the 1%. That's, it's not, that's, we have, we have such a, uh, a disjointed division of wealth in this country as it is to then place that, division within uh, along a kind of a a barometer for where a person's safety, success, equality lives based upon that tax bracket, I think is just, it's bizarre, but it is something that everyone seems to be doing nowadays, especially since hip hop culture is, is so prominent. But what we have to remember is that the origins of it, once again, did not come from multi-billion dollar industries. It came from the streets and there are cultural voyeurs out there that have this fascination with those streets, um, but never want to walk down them. And I think that a lot of artists before they reach the heights of their success or even after, because most of their families live there, they're still walking down those streets. And if they can't walk down those streets safely, then the problem has not been solved. It's only been given the soundtrack that's now been mass consumed by everybody. So to suggest that everything is all better because the wallets are fatter is just very, very indicative of the American way. Sure enough. Um, I think that now, you know, you've also got this, it is a predatory, almost it's an exploitive kind of predatory attitude um, to gut the, you know, the hip hop scene of its street roots and its obligation really, um, to continue to report from the streets because, you know, just, just to give some, we'll, we'll add some, some examples to the, to the numbers. Kendrick Lamar, um, Good Kid Mad City sold 746,000 units at $15 a piece. So we know there's big money involved, um, but so the average mainstream rapper, though, is moving, say, 300, I'm reading reports now, 304,000 units, um, grossing, let's say, 4 million five. okay? But then there's a record labor, label, manufacturer, distributor, retailer, studio production, I would argue with female rappers, there might even be even more need for um, packaging. There's always also safety concerns. But at the end of the day, as an artist, you're keeping about 10% if you are a mainstream rapper. Um, Maybe that overhead goes down a little bit with indie uh, production companies. But I wonder if... You know, you're in the, you're in the business of, of helping people get a leg up. I'm wondering if it's even when you look at this disparity of wealth and you look at the one percenters who are being shown in their planes, in their L.A. glass box houses with the hundred carat diamond around their neck, is that dispiriting? Is it? alienating or is it aspirational to a young performer coming coming off the streets these days to you know develop their talent and make their artistic contribution is that is it does it kind of crush your hopes or how does that dynamic actually work for aspiring artists do you think well i think it's a i think there's a combination of dream building and dream breaking because I, 
what I try to explain to my students, because in my, in my classes, there are still, there are people who want to work in the music industry to help artists. And then there are people who want to work in the music industry because they themselves are artists and they want to learn how to navigate without the assistance of a record label. Or even when they get to a record label, they want to know how to make correct decisions and who to employ on their teams, et cetera. The thing that I, I think that has happened, and this goes beyond hip hop again, but, but, but because you know, you're mentioning the um, the platinum chains, and I think that that's that's very symbolic of of a success story where you're you're visibly wearing those things, or, or you're driving a specific car, and it does give off this illusion that that is the once again the metric for success. Um, what I try to explain to artists is you can sustain a really healthy six figure career, but you won't be on an episode of MTV's Cribs. And that's mm-hmm. also fine. I think where, if we're speaking specifically to hip-hop, and this is just going by the artists that I've worked with in the past, the pressure to look a certain way, the fake it till you make it, right? That is something that I think does very, very greatly affect the artistic experience when it comes to dictating their success story. Because what will end up happening is, if an artist, if, the, if an artist started in the streets, if they started uh, selling drugs or, or stealing or doing doing any any number of illegal activities, right? And music was supposed to be the saving grace. They see their favorite rapper in this, you know, glass house, as, as you say, with with their their chains and their cars and all these things. And their music career is not giving them enough money to to get to that visual level, right? That's when they start supplementing their artistic career again with illegal activity to reach what is supposed to be the goalpost, the perceived goalpost, right? And that's where people start getting in trouble. And now what you're seeing is the um, the RICO Act has now been used to take down a number of new hip hop artists but it's doing it in such an aggressive way because what they're doing is if, if a uh, hip-hop, they're, they're using mafia, um, an, an act that was used to take down the mafia for 16-year-old kids from northern Florida. So if a kid, uh-huh. let's say, is carrying a weapon across state lines, they're using the RICO Act to then take him down and, and possibly serve a decade in prison. Or oh. if there is some illegal activity to that, right? And if there's illegal activity to, let's say, supplement their income, they're you, they're saying it's actually racketeering. It's used to fund the record label. So it becomes that same thing, like in the mafia films, you know, the laundromat, right? So I think there is a pressure. It's an unnecessary pressure. And, and there should be some sort of behind the scenes of, Hey, this isn't all that's going on. You know, um, some of those cars are rented <laughs> or have been repossessed at mm-hmm. one point or another. Like there, there needs that conversation needs to be had. I will. I, I agree with that. But I think it also has to do with um, almost saying that your your success for your art is not dictated by your opulence. It's right. it's what's supposed to fulfill you. What, what's what's supposed to bring you your fans and spread your message. And, and, you know, and and this goes beyond hip hop music, but I mean, the music industry nowadays is really just dictated by how many times you can dance on TikTok or, you know, what clip you put on Instagram that leads to a record deal. The, the, it's now viral success and, and it's beyond the person in the coffee shop or at spoken word night that that's those days while they exist, they're not the driving force behind the music industry nowadays. And I think that that's the starting off point is what happens when an industry that was once defined by art no longer has actual artists. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, big, uh, that's the big question because then you start to question the credibility of the music. You start to question the credibility of the artist's intentions in putting out that music. You start questioning powers that be. It all becomes part of this big, gigantic cycle. So... I, again, it didn't start with hip-hop. It certainly won't end there, but I think the spotlight is on hip-hop because, once again, hip-hop is the top genre. But 
and, and, and I think it was timed a little too perfectly to this whole viral craze. Because when rock and roll was at the top, you know, we had these conversations questioning the quote-unquote punk credibility of certain bands, you know, whether or not they, they shopped at Hot Topic versus thrift stores, right? That used to be the biggest, the biggest question of their authenticity, right? But I think now what we're, we're experiencing is a more widespread question of authenticity, and unfortunately, it's happening timed to the astronomical success of hip-hop. So once again, the fingers are being pointed at hip-hop when hip-hop was not actually the problem. Right. And we're talking about kind of an artisanal artisanal backlash to overproduced, whether it's authors, musicians, fashion designers, things that, you know, brands that are overworked and lack original creativity or authenticity. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you today, Kathy Yandoli, and I would like to thank you. We have less than a minute to go. Would you just give us a quick snippet of what's next, what we can hear from you? Yes, and, and it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Dad. Um, first off, on Tuesday, I have a deck coming out called the Hip Hop Queen's Oracle Deck with um, the incredible illustrator and artist Monica Ahananu. We took 52 figures of, of women from hip hop and R&B and hip hop adjacent genres, and we made these cards cool. where we tap into their inner strengths of what they represent in a way that's almost like cool. a combination of a tarot oracle setting. Um, and it. it's for anyone to use okay. if you're a hip hop fan. Um, and Lil' Kim's the Queen Bee coming in 2022. Awesome. You can find Kathy Yandley on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. Thank you for the scholarship at yellowbrick.co. It's a beautiful way to give back. Thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and get the back of a sister or a brother. Till next week, happy Thanksgiving, and thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.